All right, well, you can go ahead and be seated, and I'm going to say welcome to Crossroads Church. Wow, like, yeah, it's cool. So uh, just so you know, um, this is a little weird, having people in the building. I just want you to know over the last seven months, uh, any time that I've been in this position to preach, I've been preaching to one person, and it's that beautiful man, Mark Rinks, right there behind camera number two, all right? So, uh, yes. So anyways, a little different today that we're all in the house. I want to welcome Fort Lupton. I want to welcome all of you joining on Crossroads Live as we gather together to worship today. If you are brand new with us, welcome to Crossroads Church. Uh, we are so glad you're here. And my prayer is that while this may be your first time, it certainly would not be your last. And over this hour of worship together, that ultimately uh, that you would be inspired to check us out again and to see what we're all about when it comes to Jesus and lifting Jesus' name high. And so if you have your Bible, we're going to go ahead and be in Luke chapter chapter 9 today. And so you can turn to Luke chapter 9. It's where we're going to find ourselves as we continue our series uh, through the gospel of Luke. And if you're brand new uh, to the scriptures or to the Bible, just know that Luke is one of the four accounts of Jesus's life. And we're in week really seven of an eight-week series here that we're going through through the book of Luke. And really the whole premise of this series is to really consider the life of Jesus so we can answer the big questions that we have in life. Like, like when it comes to Jesus and, and can we really take Jesus seriously, his teachings seriously, in a way that, that we actually apply them to our, to our lives. And undoubtedly, Jesus is one of the most influential, if not the most influential person in human history. And so why is, he, why is he that? And what does it look like to, to truly follow after him and to truly know him? So that when it comes to our lives, that we can decide for ourselves if Jesus is really worth following and giving our lives to. And so, as we've gone through this series, we just consider the best way to be able to do that is by looking at the scriptures, the story of Jesus, so that we can decide for ourselves who he is, what he was all about. And so I want to kind of set the scene for you this week. This week we are peering into one of the most pivotal points or the most pivotal point in Jesus' life according to Luke. And as we jump into this, really the next two weeks, this week and next week, as we look at this together, is monumental in the life of Jesus. That this is the point that all of the stories had led up to. The 40-day fast, the healings of people who are paralytic or lepers, the, the rising of a little girl from the dead, all of the teachings from the parables of the kingdom of heaven to the sermon on the plains, all of it has led to this point right here, this story. That Jesus and his 12 disciples have finally made it to a place where he was taking them. He was leading them to the foot of Mount Hermon in a city called Caesarea Philippi. It was a place known for its pagan worship of the Greek god, Pan. And for the disciples, this was shocking. Like, listen, in their world, this was the red light district of their day. That people would travel to Caesarea Philippi because there was a little spring here next to Mount Hermon, and that spring would run under the mountain into a cave. And for the people of Caesarea Philippi, they believed that this spring heading into this cave was heading into the gates of the underworld. Like literally, this was the gates of hell. And every year, people would gather in Caesarea Philippi at the foot of Mount Hermon, and they would engage in ritual sexual acts in order to entice the god Pan from the underworld into this world. That this was a city literally knocking on the gates of hell. And right behind this stream 
up on the cliff is this huge temple. You can actually still see this today if you go to Israel. Dedicated to the Greek god Pan and to the Canaanite god uh, named Baal. And in the cliffs are these altars that are carved, hundreds of altars carved, where the, where the images of these gods would be placed on these altars. And Luke begins this story by telling us that Jesus has led his disciples to this place. And as they're all looking at, at really the world religion on display, Jesus turns and he's there by the spring and he's praying. And none of the gospel writers tell us what he's praying for. We just know that he's praying. And after he wraps up his prayer, he turns and he looks at his disciples and he asks them this question in Luke chapter 9, verse 18. Who do the crowds say that I am? Now, before we dive too deep into this, just know that this is the setup. This is a setup question, and we've all been hit with the setup question, haven't we? The setup question goes a little bit like this. Hey, man, what are you doing this weekend? Oh, nothing, just watching some football. Sweet, you want to help me move? Right? Like, oh, yes, right? Like, that's the setup. We've all been hit with the setup question. For Jesus, this is just the setup. This is just an objective survey question. Who do people say that I am? Listen, the scene can't be any more striking. The world's religions on display behind him. He looks at his disciples standing at the gates of hell. And he says, who do people say that I am? And some of the disciples begin to speak up, verse 19, and they answered him. Some say John the Baptist, but others say Elijah. And others still, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Now, as we look at the questions or the answers that the disciples give to the question, that the answers are, are all over the place. John the Baptist, this one's a little bit funny. He is Jesus' cousin. In fact, if you are familiar with the Gospels, you know that from time to time that Jesus hung uh, with John the Baptist. In fact, it was John who did Jesus' baptism. That's why we call him John the Baptist. And just a few verses prior, Herod, the appointed Roman governor, made very clear that John the Baptist was dead in the most public way by chopping off his head and literally de delivering it to people on a platter. A little bit different. When it comes to Elijah, Elijah maybe makes a little bit more sense. Not because, like, the Jews believed in reincarnation. That wasn't what was going on at all. But rather, when it comes to the prophets, there was this understanding that where one man of God ended, another one would step up and begin. And people would all the time would, would look at different figures, and they would say, that's Elijah. And what they meant was, is not this isn't, like, literally Elijah, but this is someone walking in the shoes of Elijah. This is someone walking in the path of Elijah. This made a little bit more sense. In a way, it wasn't wrong, but it wasn't right either. There could be a lot worse answers here. But what specifically the question revealed is that what people thought about Jesus in his day was very similar to what people think about Jesus in our day. And the disciples' answers, what, what they were saying was, Jesus, people believe that you're a good and wise man, that you're a good moral standard that we should, that we should live our lives to, that you're a great teacher, and some, some are even saying that maybe you are from God. In other words, Jesus, you're among the greats. You are among the greats. And some people believe that you are the one who will take us and carry us against Rome. They weren't entirely wrong, but they weren't entirely right either. But again, this is just the setup, verse 20. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, one of the disciples, one of Jesus' trusted 12, 
called, instructed, sometimes walking on water, right? Other times sinking like a rock. Like full of understanding, but often, often of little faith. But nevertheless, at this point, knowing and ultimately giving a great confession that Jesus, you are the Christ. That Peter stands forth among the twelve as their representative on behalf of all of them utters the words that you are the Christ of God. Now, I've wondered oftentimes in my life when it comes to this passage that when Jesus turns this question on his disciples, if there was like a long, uneasy pause here, like if, if as the 12 disciples like looked at one another standing there, if they had this burning like sensation of anxiety racing inside of them. I mean, they had been there with all the stories, hadn't they? They had seen all the miracles. They had heard all of the teachings. They wanted to say it. They, they wanted to jump out and go, you're the one. You're the one that we've been waiting for. But maybe in this moment, they, they hesitated. Then no one wanted to put themselves out first. Or I wonder, maybe it went down completely different than that. Maybe it went down differently in, in such a way that, that as soon as the words were off Jesus' lips, that Peter shouts with all enthusiasm that, that you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. See, the Jewish people had been waiting for thousands upon thousands of years. And I just wonder... When Jesus asked this question, who do you say that I am, that, G, uh, that Peter jumps forth with thousands of years worth of expectation and says, man, you're the one that we, we've been waiting for. You're it. See, I know at times we get this a little bit mixed up when we start talking about Jesus Christ. And sometimes, unintentionally, I think, sometimes we just start to slip in and we think like Christ is Jesus' last name. But here's the deal. You can't go back in ancient history, ancient, ancient Israel, and find a P.O. box with like Christ, Jesus on it, right? Because it's not his last name. It's in a title. And it's important for us to understand that Christ is the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, and both of them mean the exact same thing. They mean the anointed one. They mean the one chosen of God. See, Peter wasn't just saying his last name. He was making a truth claim. He was going, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one, Israel's expectation, the one promised by God to fulfill all the other promises, not just one from God, but who is God. Not just a wise and moral person, but a savior. And every time, listen to me, every time we articulate the name Jesus Christ, we are not saying a last name, but rather we are making a truth statement. When Peter makes this statement, it is a trumpet blast into human history declaring that Jesus is who he says he is. Now listen, as a pastor, oftentimes I, I find myself in various walks of life with, with different people. And many times over the year, pe people have come to me and they've said to me, Matt, like, like, I just want Jesus. Like, you can take all that other stuff, meaning the Bible, and you can just give me Jesus. In fact, no kidding, someone here at Crossroads Church, a woman probably uh, 15 years ago or something, came up to me, and she said, Matt, I have an idea for a Bible. And I thought, well, this is really good. We have like hundreds of Bibles in the world, right? But let me hear your idea for your Bible. And she goes, my idea for the Bible is to take just all the red words. Like, we can cut out all the other useless stuff, right? And, and just give me the red words, like Jesus's words. Now, like, I, pr I disagree with her when it comes to, like, the rest of the Bible being useless, but I understand what she was trying to say. That at the end of the day, what she was trying to convey was, I want Jesus. 
And the truth is, is I want you to have Jesus too. Because here's what I believe, that your only chance, your only chance at refreshment in this world comes through Jesus. That your only hope and your only chance at purpose comes through Jesus in this world. That, that your only chance at contentment comes through Jesus in this world. That your only chance at peace, real sustaining peace, comes through Jesus in this world. And when Jesus comes and says, who is it that you say that I am? This is not the setup. This is the point. And it's an entirely different question, isn't it? Who is it that you say that I am? When it comes to what really matters in this world, this is it. This is priority. Who is it that you say that I am? And just like the disciples some 2,000 years ago, as Jesus turns this question on us today, he looks at us eye to eye and he says, who is it that you believe that I am? And maybe you're tempted to answer like the crowds of people. Maybe you're tempted to, to go, well, Jesus, I believe that you're a, that you're a good and, and wise person. That you're a moral standard for, for me to live my life after. That you're a great teacher. But the problem is, is that Jesus won't let you put him there. In fact, this Luke, the gospel writer here, he won't let you put Jesus there. That you have to decide. Either Jesus is who he says he is, and he's the Christ sent from God. He's, he is God, or he is crazy claiming to be God. But we can't have it both ways. Who do you say that I am? That's the question, isn't it? And in this moment, Peter gets it right. Like the guy, the disciple who more often than not like sticks his foot in his mouth, you know, in the wrong times, like all throughout the Gospels. This time he gets it right. And in this moment, when, when he gets it right, it's, it's not like celebration erupts. Balloons aren't falling from the sky. You know, we are the champions isn't blaring over the loudspeakers. There's no celebration in the rightness of Peter's answer. It's very odd. In fact, Jesus takes it a whole different direction. Jesus uses this opportunity to give a warning. It's the oddest of things, verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one saying the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed on the third day to be raised. Now, don't lose sight of the hugeness of this moment that Jesus right now is declaring, making it known without a shadow of doubt for the first time in Luke's gospel that he is the messianic king. And that he's coming to establish his rule and his reign. But here's the deal. It begins to happen in ways that we would not imagine. That he's not coming to, to establish his rule and reign through like military power. But rather he says, I'm going to establish my rule and reign by dying. By becoming the suffering servant that Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah spoke out some thousands of years before. And as we read through over the, really the next year as Jesus makes his way to Jerusalem, his words about suffering and death will ultimately come true. See, it's about a year from this very point, this pivotal point, that Jesus enters into Jerusalem for the last time. And after, and after the disciples for three years have watched Jesus perform miracle after miracle, watching this guy walk on water, feed 5,000 out of an Avengers lunchbox, 
teaching that, that riveted the masses of people, not just for like an hour, but for days on end where people would willingly give up meals. All of this combined into a person who was not only man, but also God. And even as they watched for these three years with hope, watching, waiting, combined with 2,000 years of, of suffering and waiting for the Messiah, the superhero sent from God, on that day, one year from this pivotal point, as Jesus enters into the cities of Jerusalem, the crowds will gather and they will begin to shout, King set us free, King set us free. But the winds will change quickly. And throughout that final week, there will be a trial, there will be conviction. And instead of the crowds screaming and yelling, King set us free, the chance will be crucify him, crucify him. And the words that Jesus speaks here in Luke chapter 9 will come all too true. As the elders and the chief priests and the scribes reject him as the Messiah, nailing him to a tree, to an old rugged cross to die. And in light of all of that, with Peter's confession ringing in the ears of the disciples, Jesus says to them, verse 23, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and, and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself. Listen, in other words, what Jesus is saying is that it's better to lose your life than to waste your life. That it is completely possible for you to waste your life. And there is nothing that makes me tremble more than to realize that I can take this gift of life given to me and completely waste it. Regardless of where we're at, whether we're here at Thornton, at Fort Lupton, whether you're watching on Crossroads Live, largely there's two groups of people right now that I'm speaking to. Those who believe and those who God is calling to believe. Listen, you wouldn't be here if God wasn't working in your life. And the sad thing is, is that regardless of whichever camp we're in, Jesus says it is completely and totally possible for us to waste our lives that we can waste our lives. And so if you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, here's what Jesus is offering to you in this moment right now. That he's offering to you relationship with him, belonging to God through the forgiveness of your sins and ultimately being able to do what you were made to do in this life. That's his offer to you. Every day when I come uh, down the stairs at my house, we have this, this picture of a quote by Bob Goff. Bob Goff is one of my favorite authors. He, he wrote uh, a couple of books, and this quote is one that, that just sticks out to me. He writes this, that every day God invites us on the same kind of adventure. It's not a trip where he sends us a rigid itinerary. He simply invites us. God asks what it is he's made us to love what it is that captures our attention, what feeds that deep, indescribable need of our souls to experience the richness of the world he has made. And then leaning over, he whispers, let's go do that. Listen, I don't care who you are, that sets fire in your heart, doesn't it? I mean, that's the kind of life that we all want to live. And Jesus says that you can be invited on that kind of adventure, but it will cost you your life. You must lose your life in order to save it. Jesus says we must deny ourselves. And the verb that he uses there, 
of deny actually and literally means to disown, to turn your back on. And the self-denial that Jesus is speaking of is, is not just like giving up the luxuries of this world. That has nothing to do with what he's talking about. What he's talking about here is that your ability to renounce your right to go your own way, to give up being king of your own kingdom, and instead placing all that you are and all that you have in his hands to direct you as he sees fit. And Jesus says that if you're willing to do that, the adventure of your life is before you, but it will cost you everything. And I just believe that if you're here today and you haven't made the decision to follow Jesus, to give your life up in order to save your life, to go on this adventure that God is calling you to, that the reason you're here today is because God's whispering in your heart. And if he is whispering to you right now, my encouragement to you is to take out your cell phone and to simply text the word Jesus to the number that's on the screen, 720-513-1933. Whether you're in the building, watching online, wherever it may be, if God's whispering to your soul right now, I'd encourage you to start that journey by texting Jesus to that number. We want to walk with you through this. For those of us who are, who are believers, that you too get one chance at living this life. That God created us to live with a, with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion. A passion that is altogether about glorifying God and enjoying to displaying his awesomeness in all of the world to see. John Piper, one of the great American preachers of our day and age, writes this, that enjoying and displaying are both crucial. If we try to show how awesome God is without joy in it, we will display a shell of hypocrisy and create legalism. I mean, is that not the story of the American church right now? But then he goes on and he says, if we claim to enjoy his excellence and do not put it on display for others to see and admire, we deceive ourselves because the mark of God-enthralled joy overflows and is expanded by extending itself into the hearts of others. Listen, this is the wasted life that Jesus is talking about. A life that is, that is lived without passion for who Jesus is in everything for everyone. Jesus says, you want fulfillment in your life? Begin by denying yourself every day, picking up your cross and following me in your life. Years later, the Apostle Paul writes to the church in Ephesus, and he puts some practical handles around this for us to understand what it is that, that this denial looks like. Like, how do we live this out? What does it look like? And he writes in Ephesians 2.10 these words, that we are God's workmanship. That we are God's workmanship. Now, the key to understanding this verse is to understand that workmanship here, it comes from the Greek word poeo, which is where we get our word poem. Listen to this. This is huge. This verse literally reads that we are God's poetry. <laughs> that, that what William Shakespeare did with a pen, God does with your life. That you are his creative best. And yet here's the kicker. Did you notice the noun? The noun there is not, I am God's poetry. It's not, you are God's poetry. Very distinctly, it says, we, we are God's poetry. That the denial that we have in ourselves is the end of me and the beginning of we. That we are God's poetry. And that through his poetry, he is writing a grand message to this world. And he's using the studious of mind to think and speak about deep truths. And he's using visionaries to lead. And he's using the generous to fund the mission and the compassionate to pray and the merciful to encourage and the doers to serve. And God is using all of this together in what Jesus ultimately calls the church. And it's in this moment of Peter's confession where what we are a part of today is launched 
And as the church, we are the hope of the world. And it is through not my display, but our display and our joy in Jesus that the rest of the world sees how awesome God is. Now, come on. The sum total of our lives, Jesus says, if the sum total of your life is some form of achieving the American dream so that you can chase a little white ball on grass, Jesus says you are wasting your life. But rather, if the sum total of your life is about displaying and ultimately showing the glory of God, then in your loss, you will be saved and you will go on an adventure that will ultimately change your life. In the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, we're given a beautiful picture of what the completed poetry looks like. And we're told these things, that there's going to come a day that when we will stand face to face, eye to eye with our God, And in that day, in that moment, we will be like him. And he's going to wipe our eyes dry, which means that there's no more tears, there's no more pain, there's no more suffering. And in him doing that, that we will be like him, that we will be like him. And forever, 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 we will be his. And then the beauty of of Revelation chapter 5, that the poetry of God will lift our voices in unison. And we will shout out in singing blessing and honor and glory and power forever be yours. See, that great poetic moment begins right here in Luke chapter 9. As Jesus makes the determination and marches towards the cross in Jerusalem. Where his body will be broken for us. And his blood poured out for the forgiveness of our sins. And as we go to communion as a church on this day, we're reminded of Jesus' sacrifice. That none of this is possible without his body being broken for our sins. That Jesus makes the greatest demonstration, losing his life so that we might be saved. And so today, we remember by eating together. But then God takes it a step forward. And he says, it's by the spilling of Jesus' blood that our sins are forgiven. That's the beginning of life for us. To say, God, not my will. I'm not king of my own kingdom that I've done that and it's led to sin. It's led to brokenness in my life. That I give it all over to you, trusting and knowing that you're my savior, that you forgive my sins and that right relationship can be had. And so we remember by drinking together. Would you pray with me, Father? Lord, I'm grateful for these words. I'm grateful for the reminder that is that is the warning that Jesus gave to us. That it's completely possible to live a life and to completely waste it. And God, for everyone who hears my voice today, God, I pray that that their life would not be a wasted life, but rather, Lord, that we would wrestle with the question, who is it that you say that I am? 
in our own lives and that we would decide for ourselves. Lord, that's the whole point of Luke writing his gospel is so that we can decide for ourselves who it is that Jesus is. And so, Lord, I pray that you would whisper into every one of our lives. Lord, that you would examine our lives in light of who you are and who you call us to be. Lord, we thank you. Lord, we respond now, Lord, in singing of songs to you and praise. And so, Lord, we give it to you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. As we prepare to sing and gather together, I'm going to invite you to stand at Fort Lupton here in the church. At home, you can stand if you want to as well. If you need prayer today, we have prayer people ready at both of our locations. Just head towards the back left right now, and we'll have you, we'll have people ready to pray for you online. You can simply ask someone to pray with you, and we have people available to do that.